Praise the Lord. Amen. All right. Let's try. God is good. Okay. All the time, Suji. God is good. All the time. God is good. Okay. Okay. Hey, so I was away this week and um, someone said, someone I was talking to was like, hey, uh, I thought it was weird when I came and visited your church after someone got up and prayed, uh, the congregation didn't say amen. They thought that was a little bit weird. And I thought that was a little bit weird. And I was like, oh, that's so sad. So can we do this? If I say praise the Lord, can you say amen like you believe it, right? Praise the Lord. Amen. All right. Amen. Amen. Can you look at someone and say, I'm so glad that you are here today. Can we do that? Just greet each other in the name of the Lord. Yeah, welcome to those who are uh, worshiping with us online as well. Before I uh, moved here um, to Florida, I was um, doing some college ministry up in Virginia. And when I was moving down here, um, you know, it's like a pretty motley crew of people that um, I was doing ministry with. And so you have uh, kind of an idea when you're leaving, like who are the people that you're going to stay in contact with and who are the people that you'll kind of like drift away from. So I had in my, in my mind a, a vision of the people that I would continue like walking and, and doing life with. But there was this one person in particular who, uh, when I moved down here, he would call me like somewhat regularly. It was a little bit, a little bit strange to me because we were never that close uh, when I was up in Virginia. Um, we would, you know, we would talk at meetings, but we'd never like hang out together, never go out. Um, he was a little bit like awkward socially. Um, I didn't see him having all that many friends. Like he talked to some people here and there, but he would begin his sentence. I don't know if you know people like this, but he would begin his sentences with the word say, as in say, that's a nice mask you're wearing today, or say, um, I like your car, or say, uh, we should go out to eat lunch together, all of us, after church. That's kind of the way he, he spoke. Again, I wasn't really particularly close with him, and so I thought it would be, it was kind of odd when he would call me up, and I was down here, and, and, and we talked about nothing really, just, hey, just wanted to check in. We'll call him Paul. Paul said, hey, uh, you know, I just wanted to check in and see how things are going. I said, things are going well. Thank you for, for calling. A few months into my life down here, he calls me up and he says, hey, I'm going to visit Florida. I wanted to see if you had some time. I said, absolutely, would love to grab lunch or something. I didn't drink much coffee back then, so let's grab lunch or dinner. And he said, actually, I'm coming down and um, I was wondering, can I stay at your house? I was like, well, I don't have a house, but yeah, man, you can come and, come and stay with me. How long are you thinking? It was just a, a quick, maybe like two, three days. And he, I, I asked him why he's coming down and he said, well, I'm actually going to a football game in Miami, and I have a ticket for you. So in my mind, like several strikes against this idea. One, like we're not that, that, that close, for one. Number two, he dropped this bomb on me that he's going to stay at my house, in my apartment, and I wasn't really expecting that. Number three, I was busy. Number four, I didn't care about this football game at all. It was a college bowl game down in Miami, his college against another college. I didn't really care for either of them. And then the fifth thing is like, Miami is not that close to here. It was a Saturday night, and he's saying, uh, can you drive me down there? So I was like, uh, I don't need to go to the game, man. You can come and just hang out here and um, go to the game and, and come back. And he's like, well, you know, I have a ticket for you, and I was wondering if you could drive. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I guess uh, my plans for that weekend have changed. Oh, yeah, come on down. I was really nice back then. I'm not as nice now. But I said, yeah, I'll do that. I'll, that's cool. So we're driving down, go down, come back. On, I mean, it was a fun game, better game than I expected it to be. But we're driving back. It's like Saturday night at midnight. And I'm like, dude, I got church in the morning, tired. And so we're driving. He's like, say, that was a great game. I was like, yeah, it was a good game. It was a lot of fun. And 
after a lull in the conversation, um, he kind of stops. I, I'm wondering, is he, is he sleeping or is he thinking really deeply? And then he said, say, do you think that a cruel and heartless world would notice if I was no longer alive? Whatever feelings of tiredness I had at that moment went out the window and I pretty much ran my car off the highway. I was like, what, what did you say? Like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you know, I just feel like for a lot of life, I just feel like I don't really matter. I feel like people don't care. I don't have people that I can call my friends. And, and all of a sudden, I began to understand why he flew into Orlando to take a four-hour drive and a four-hour drive back because he had questions that he was seeking answers to, questions that he knew only God could answer, and these were of utmost importance. They're not only important to people like this guy we'll call Paul, but they're important to you and me because these are questions of cosmic significance, that we need to find the answers to these questions in order to justify our, our existence on this planet. And so I want to look today at Psalm chapter 8 to try and answer, if I, could, if I could speak to Paul now, this is what I would say to him. Sadly, I haven't kept in touch with him. I don't know what's going on in his life. I don't know where he is or what he's, uh, what's going on. But if for some reason this guy named Paul is watching and listening, um, these are some of the things that I would say to him. Because you know someone like this, and chances are some of you may be asking these same questions as we come to worship this Sunday morning. Uh, here in July. We're going to read from Psalm 8. We looked at this last week, um, but as I was preparing and it got to Saturday, I was like, this is way too much to talk about in one week. And so we got through the first half. We're going to get to the second half asking two major questions that Psalm 8 asks. One, who is God? And number two, who am I? Because you can't answer the question of who am I unless you've answered and wrestled with the question of who is God. And so we're going to look at Psalm 8 and ask, who am I in light of this God. Psalm 8, it says, for the director of music, according to Giddeth, the Psalm of David, David the shepherd, who would become king as he would stare out at night watching his flock under the Judean sky, would see the stars and the moon and all of the things that he's speaking of here, and he would ask these questions that Paul and all of us have asked or will one day ask. And this is what the Word of God says to us. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? Son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. So the psalm begins with a statement of praise that all over the earth, okay, in every corner and every crevice of the cosmos, God's glory is to be seen in every part of creation. 
He begins with praise that reverberates and resonates the world over. And at the end, he ends with praise, the exact same thing. And the hope is that the praise that we begin this reading with would become even more magnified as we go through a reading and understanding of what the psalmist is saying. So what is he saying? He's saying in light of the God who created everything, like this great big world in which we live, which scientists have shown just to be a pale blue dot in the grand scheme of things, David's saying the God who made all that with his finger, <laughs> with his finger, in light of that God, like who am I? Like, do you, like, who am I that you would care for? This is a question that my guy was asking on the drive back from Miami. Who am I in light of a God that big? Do I carry any weight, any significance at all? Have you ever asked questions like this before? I remember the first time I realized the sheer smallness of my seeming greatness. When I was a little kid with bowl haircut and tube socks pulled up to my knees. I thought I was something special. My brother would uh, sometimes take me into a closet and beat me up. I'm just kidding. But he would take me into a closet and he would tell me this story. Um, it's not a story that you can tell often because there's a punchline to it. And once you know the punchline, the story's ruined forever. But he would take me into a closet. He'd turn out the lights in the room, take me in the closet, turn out the lights in the closet, and we'd sit there and he's like, I'm going to tell you a story. Don't be scared. I was like, all right. So he's sitting there like, I'm five, he's eight, he's telling me this story. And he would say this story that maybe you've heard or you've read before. He would say, in a dark, dark universe. Do you know this one? <laughs> there was a dark, dark galaxy. In a dark, dark galaxy, there's a dark, dark solar system. <laughs> the dark, dark solar system, there's a dark, dark planet. In the dark, dark planet, there's a dark, dark continent. In that dark, dark continent, there was a dark, dark country. That dark, dark country was a dark, dark state. In that dark, dark state, there's a dark, dark city. And in that dark, dark city, there's a dark, dark neighborhood. In that dark, dark neighborhood, there's a dark, dark house. In that dark, dark house, there was a dark, dark closet. In that dark, dark closet, there was you. And then he would yell at me. And I would scream and say, ah, and I would run out and say, Mom, Mom. You know what Terry did to me? And he would tell that story. He only needed to tell it once, but every time he told it, it would still be scary. But what it did now as I get older is I begin to realize that we live in a great big world, and I'm a really tiny part of that great big world. When's the first time you realized that? Maybe for David, it was when he was tending sheep. And he was looking up at the stars. For some reason, David comes to this point of realization just like some of us do. And we wonder, what is man? What is woman? Who am I? And do I matter in this life? These are the questions that we need to ask because they're questions of ultimate importance. And Psalm 8 gives us some really deep insight into it. Here's the first thing. First thing that we see is that creation is God's gallery. Okay, creation is God's gallery. We see his glory. Creation is God's gallery, and you, without risking cheesiness, you are his masterpiece. Creation is a gallery of God's artwork, his glory, his majesty, and when you ask the question, who am I, the answer of Psalm 8 is that you are the masterpiece in this gallery of creation. 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, your glory above the heavens. Verse 4, when I consider that, the work of your fingers, moon, stars, all that stuff, what is man, what is woman, who am I that you're mindful of me, the son of man, the son of woman, the daughters of man, that you care for him or her? The right answer to the question, in light of a God so massive, the right answer to the question ought to be, we are nothing. We are a pale blue dot on a pale blue dot in a great big world. That's who we are. Yesterday, my family was at a swimming pool, and um, Olive and Elise were in the water, and um, I was taking a break, and Elijah was taking a break, and Manny was taking a break, and as I came out of the water, Manny was sitting there reading, and she said, Daddy, be careful, there's a bunch of ants on the floor, and so I said, okay, and so I uh, avoided the ants, Elijah came, and we said, Elijah, be careful, there are a bunch of ants on the floor, and Elijah was fascinated by them, Manny was scared of them, but Elijah was like, ooh, ants, and so he was eating goldfish, and he put a goldfish down, and he saw all the ants start going to it, and so I wanted to kind of be nice to it, so I crushed the goldfish into many little pieces so that the ants could start eating it, and they're carrying it away as they scurried. I had to do everything within my power not to want to take my foot and step on all of these ants. Because that would be fun for me. Like, that would be awesome. Elijah would think it's great. Manny would get a little bit sad. But I was like, dude, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to take out my cell phone and put the, put the, put the, uh, the camera function and try and burn them to death like we used to do with magnifying glasses. That's what I wanted to do. But I didn't want to teach bad lessons to the kids. That's what I wanted to do because that's when someone of my size and significance looks at something of such seeming insignificance. The answer to the question is what are ants is that the right answer should be they're nothing. But you see here that the right answer is actually the wrong answer. Who am I in light of a God so great? This is what he says. God made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us with glory and honor. That is insane that God would do that for us. What is he saying? He's saying in all of this beautiful gallery that is creation, that is the world, everything of which screams the glory of God. He says the pinnacle of that is not a beautiful eagle as it flies through the Grand Canyon. It's not a Niagara Falls like some would have us believe, but the pinnacle of creation, the high point of creation is you. And it's me and it's humanity. In all of our brokenness, in all of our uh, flaws and frailty, in all of our weaknesses, David says, the Word of God says that we are the high point of creation in the entire galaxy, that you and I are the Mona Lisa of God. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. See, sometimes artists will do this. Right? Sometimes directors or creators will do things like this. When you watch um, every episode, I, I think I've heard every episode of Seinfeld has a reference to Superman in it somehow because Seinfeld wanted you to know that this is clearly the work of his because he loves Superman. In every episode of the show Friends, the word friends is spoken in dialogue at some point because they want you to know this is the trademark, the signature embedded of the creator into the actual work that has been created. There's a uh, painter named Thomas Kincaid, and every one of Kincaid's paintings, you will see, if you look hard enough, you find it, the letter N is painted in all of his paintings as a tribute to his wife, Nanette. Right? 
Sometimes the creator embeds his trademark into parts of the creation. And God says the one place in which my trademark is most clearly seen is in Gianna, is in Chai, is in Nathan, is in Greg, is in each and every single one of us. The mark of the divine, the spark of the divine is in each of us crowned with glory and honor far above all other creation. See, God didn't mass produce the world and the people in it and say, there you go, go and be your... A few years ago, Olivia and I, we, were, um, we, we went to Tampa where she's got a cousin and her cousin at the time only had uh, one boy. He was like maybe two or three years old. His name was Xavier. And we were staying at their house one night and so um, I was sleeping on the sofa in the room that he play, his toys were in. So I was sleep, laying down in the sofa and the next morning, he woke up. He doesn't know who I am. He just knows that somebody's sleeping in his room. So he woke up, and he wanted to play in the room that I was in. And he stands over me, and he said, person, <laughs> person. And I was like, oh, my goodness. As I opened my eyes, I was like, hey, Xavier. He's like, person, can you play with me? <laughs> I was like, do you know, my, I'm Uncle David. Say, hi, Uncle David. He's like, hi, Uncle David, can you play with me? God doesn't call us person. He doesn't just say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to select all 7 billion person, and bam, they're born into existence. Each of us, fearfully, wonderfully, creatively made in the image of God, bearing the mark of the divine, the only part of creation that says we are made in the image of God. This is who we are crowned with glory and honor and dignity. He says, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Some translations say you made him a little lower than God, you made him a little lower than the angels, but regardless, we are one step down from God as the prize, as the crown, as the jewel of the created order. So when, when David is talking about this and he says, you've made him ruler over the work to your hands, you put everything under his feet, flocks and herds and beasts of the field, birds and fish and all that stuff. He's going back to Genesis and the created order in which God made uh, the world. The pecking order, here's God is up here and then people made in the image of God and then animals and the rest of creation over which we were to exercise rule and reign as the agents of God to show his ruling work in creation. Right? That's the way it was supposed to be. So it should be that uh, when we, uh, uh, yeah, we, 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 we tame animals, we have dogs, we have puppies, we have things like that, and it ought to be, Steve Shogren says this in, in his Perspectives Missions course, he says the theology of a dog is that you pet me, you feed me, you care for me, you shelter me, you must be the master, right? That's the way it ought to be, not only with dogs, it ought to be that way with cats and with cows and with fish and with lizards. All of creation ought to respond to the commands of humanity acting as the vice regent of God in that way. We ought to be ruling over creation as the agents of God in this world. That's how we were created. What David says in response to the question, who am I? He says, you are the prize, the crowning moment of creation, the high point of it through which everyone ought to see the majesty, the dignity, the worth of God. We ought not only see the majesty of God when we look into the heavens, we ought to see the majesty of God when we look into a mirror. 
That's what Psalm 8 is telling us. Who are we? Here's the first thing. All of creation is God's gallery, but you are his masterpiece. First thing. Second thing, and here's the tragic part, is but we are not what we were meant to be. But we are not what we were meant to be. Doesn't take long for us to see that, does it? We realize we're not ruling over the animals the way that we were created to be. Something is amiss here. <coughs> I was on vacation with a family, my brother and two cousins and their families, and one night at dinner we were talking. Some of them were talking about, oh, I want to get a, one of those robot vacuums, those things that we don't have to do work. We just let it go and it cleans up everything. And do they really work? I'm talking about it. And I remember one of our um, one of the ladies from Vision Church posting something on social media, you might have seen it, about her Roomba. So she set off her Roomba and it went to work as she left home for the day. Turns out that they have a dog and the dog went poop while she was away. The Roomba, I, I don't know if, she, if the Roomba sensed it, noticed it, knew it. Maybe the dog was nervous because the Roomba was moving around. But for whatever reason, the dog decided he's going to go poop in the middle of the floor. And the Roomba decides, I need to clean up this poop. It was a wet, hot piece of mess that was lying on the floor. And so I, I don't know how a Roomba works. I guess it doesn't go in. It doesn't like suck it up. But it starts pushing all of that stuff around. And so in the social media post, what she was saying was, I came home and there was dog poop all over the house, all over the floor, all over the floorboards, all over the bottoms of the wall. This is a stinking mess. And I remember reading that and I was like, I don't believe that's the way a Roomba is supposed to work. Something was off with that creation. And sometimes when I look in the mirror, I say the same thing. This isn't the way that it's supposed to be. When I look at the world in which we live, I look out and I say, you know what, something is not right. When we have racism perpetuated generation after generation, something is broken. When we have gossip that infiltrates families, homes, churches, ministries, something's not the way that it's supposed to be. See, something happened when we chose to rebel against God, the created order of God and people and creation was flipped upside down. And now it's creation and then us and then God. We'd rather worship things that were created, Romans 1, the heartbeat of idolatry, than to worship God. And so we worship people or we worship our cars or we worship our homes or we worship money or we worship the sun or we worship animals while looking down on God. Something is not right in our world. And G.K. Chesterton said, whatever, whatever we see, whatever we think, one thing is clear, that we are not what we were made to be. When we look at ourselves, we don't see ourselves a little bit lower than God, crowned with honor, dignity, made in the image of God, the prize of creation. We don't see that. We look at ourselves in a mirror and we look at it as if we're standing in a carnival in a fun house with this, a house of distorted mirrors. Either we're bigger than we are, we're smaller than we are, but we don't see the beauty in ourselves that God created. We don't see the beauty in each other that God created us to have. We don't see the reality of Psalm 8. 
Some of us make ourselves to be bigger than God. Some of us are like that, right? We feel like I ought to be the center of my world. In fact, that's the heartbeat of sin. In the middle of sin is a great big I, where I become bigger than God. When I was in eighth grade, I remember being in, in, in math class, and this, one of the kids in our class got upset about something, and he said, oh, God. And I remember as a kid growing up in church, I was like, hmm, he shouldn't say that. But another kid named Joe said something worse. Joe Nash, who was the eighth grade friend of mine who once said the McRib, that's a good sandwich. He got me interested in the McRib. When this kid said, oh God, Joe, without skipping a beat, spoke up and he said, yes, you called? I said, I don't believe you should have said that either. And a bolt of lightning came and struck Joe dead. That, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I said, I don't believe you should say that, but that's how some of us feel. I'm God, you called me. That's who I am. But it doesn't take long. Maybe in the great scheme of things, maybe 100 years at the most, 70 years on average, for someone to realize the smallness of their seeming greatness. You go to a, you go to a, to a, to a graveyard and you realize that in every graveyard are people, many of whom thought that they were once the center of their world. But we all end up in the same place. Hebrews 9.27 just as we are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. There is one God and it's not you and it's not me and it's not anybody else who's alive right now on this earth. I was talking with Elijah the other day because he's got both grandparents in town right now. I said, Elijah, do you know what grandma's names are? <laughs> he's like, no. <laughs> Grandma, your mom and her mom, mom's mom. That's all it is. What about, what about grandpa? Uh, your dad and mom's dad. I said, that's funny, Elijah. I don't really know my grandparents' names either. We just called them, my parents referred to them as Angyongsun Halmoni, like grandma with glasses, <laughs> and Seoul Halmoni, grandma in Seoul. <laughs> that's how we knew them as. We didn't know their names. I absolutely, definitely don't know my great-grandparents' names. Like if someone were to, were to bring their names and put them on a piece of paper and say, hey, do you know these people? I'd be like, I don't, believe, I don't, I don't think I do. That's your great-grandma. I was like, oh, my bad. I, I had no idea. Sometimes I feel like I, I, I'm the center of my world. But my kids, grandchildren, are going to have no idea what my name is. We are not all that important on one hand. Created, made, designed for dignity, at the same time, still lower than God. That's who we are. Others of us look at ourselves in the opposite way. If, if I were to disappear from the earth, would anybody know? Would anybody care? Could I exit stage left of history and, and nobody would realize it? David says, you made us a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. But when we look at ourselves, we don't see the mark of the divine in ourselves, and we don't see it in each other either. Not often. Not unless we're reminded of it. Not only that, we don't rule over creation the way that we used to. They, creation should, the animal should respond like dogs. You feed me, you pet me, you care for me, you must be my master. But instead, they all respond like cats. You feed me, you pet me, you shelter me, I must be the master. And that's how creation responds. Therefore, we have shows like 
extreme animal attacks <laughs> or animals gone wild. We flip out when lizards enter into our home, especially when they're white or orange looking and they crawl all over. We get, we get grossed out by them because we are not who we were created to be. Something is off in creation. David asks the right question, who are we, and gets the right answer, but we are not what we were made to be. We look at ourselves in the mirror, we look at ourselves in the existential mirror, and we don't see ourselves the way that God says we ought to see ourselves. And when our true worth is called into question, what we need to do is what you've experienced as you look to buy or sell a home, you need to do an appraisal. You need someone to come in and tell you what the worth actually is, how much value this home actually has. But an honest appraisal is so much more important when it comes to us, so much more important when it comes to us than it is when it comes to our houses. So the last thing that we're going to see, okay, the last thing that we see is that the Creator entered the gallery in order to restore what was lost. Whatever we are, we're not what we were meant to be. And so in order to show what we were meant to be, in order to show us the answer to the question, what is man, the Creator entered into the story in order that He could help us to see what we're really worth. Some of you watched Black Widow. Was that what it's called, Black Widow, this week that came out? Yeah, we watched Black Widow. It was the first movie in a long time that the creator of these Marvel uh, universe, Stan Lee, did not enter in to the movie as a cameo. Did you know that? Because Stan Lee uh, passed away somewhat recently. But for many movies, he would enter in as a cameo. Uh, and people were like, oh, that's him. That's the creator. He's awesome. Just a bit part in the movie, but they would say that's him. The creator of everything, not the Marvel universe, but the universe in which we live, in which part the Marvel universe is a tiny little blip. God the creator entered into this story, not to be a cameo, but to be the main character, the hero of heaven entered into the gallery in order that people might say, there he is, that's the creator, there he is. He's the one who's responsible for all of this. What did he do? What did he do when he came in? Well, God sent his son, Jesus, squeezing himself into a little, I mean, the God who created the galaxies, infinite and expanding, shrunk himself and wrapped himself in inches of flesh and skin and blood and bones and squeezed himself into a world through the womb of a virgin in order that he would restore creation to its right place and restore us to our rightful place in dignity. See, when you ask the question, when you read the first half of Psalm 8, you're like, holy mackerel, God is huge. See, the glory of God, the majesty of God in God, in creation. But then the second half of Psalm 8 says, we also see the majesty of God in humans. If you stop to think about it, you, you don't have to think hard, but if the glory of God is seen in God, how can the glory of God be seen in 
humanity who are so much smaller and so insignificant, who are only alive for 70, 100 years, and that's it, and then we, we die. How could, how could we see the majesty of God and the majesty of man, woman, together? It's only when we see the majesty of the God-man, Jesus. That's why he entered into the world, because we couldn't come to grips with how this could actually make sense. How could a God so great be so intimately involved in my life? Literally, okay, when it says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Okay, this is the hinge of Psalm 8. Okay, beginning and end, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's an inclusio. The main point is, who are we that you are mindful of us and that you care for us? Literally what, what David is saying, that you care. It's not a feeling. It means that you remember him, that you pursue him, that you seek him. Who are we that you would seek us out in that way? And when he says, who are we that you are mindful of us, literally what it means Literally what it means, and it's very rare that a Hebrew word literally means the same thing as the English word, but when it says mindful of him, it says, who are we that your mind is full of thoughts of us? That means in the mind of God, in the mind of God, what fills his mind it's not, how do I run the universe? It's not, oh, that plant needs watering. I should send some rain. It's not, oh my gosh, that mountain is so parched. Or, what fills his mind is you. What fills his mind is me. When, I tra when, when I'm away from my family, you know what I do, and some of us who've been on missions with me will know. I'll take out my phone. I'll just look at pictures of my family. I'll look at Olive. I'll look at Elijah. I'll look at Manny. I'll look at Elise. And I'll just be thinking of them. What are they doing? I wonder what they're doing. I wonder if they miss me. I I'm thinking of them, and on my screensaver, their picture, so that any moment, if I'm not with them, I could see them. What David is saying is God doesn't have a cell phone, but if he did, saying you would be on his lock screen. Reagan millennials would be on his lock screen. He'd be like, my mind is full of Reagan. It would be Chris Lee. It would be Eliana Kibb. It would be, it, you would be on God's. He is mindful. His mind is full, filled with you. How can that be? There's like 7 billion people. Like that's going to be a really big cell phone. Well, God's a really big God, but he also doesn't, it doesn't matter. You remember that God's infinite love, doesn't matter how much you divide infinity by, it's still going to be infinity. He loves each of us as if we're the only ones to love in this world. And he thinks of you and me as if we're the only ones to think of in the world. What is, what are we that you're mindful of him? How do, that you're mindful of, how does that make any sense that a God so great, God of wonders beyond our galaxy, could look upon me with such tender care? There's a thread that runs throughout the book of Psalms. The only way we can understand this is if we pull on that thread. And you pull out that thread and that thread is Jesus. It's all about Jesus from the beginning to the end. It's all about him. As you read through the Psalms, as our youth are reading through Psalms, you got to understand this. Every Psalm can either be sung by Jesus or sung about Jesus. It's one of the huge keys to understanding the book of Psalms. How could a God so great be so mindful of little me? Because God sent his son, Jesus, to show us how that is even possible. 
You see, when it says, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise, they're talking about God. God has ordained praise. Children and infants will praise God. But in Matthew 21, Jesus pulls these words out as children are praising Jesus. And he says, this is a fulfillment of Psalm 8. In other words, Jesus is saying, the God that Psalm 8 is about is talking about me. You want to know who God is. You want to know his character. You want to know what God's about. You look at the life of Jesus. His love, his mercy, his conviction, his wisdom, his goodness, his love, his power, all that stuff seen in Christ. The perfect embodiment of God. He is God. And then a little bit later it says, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. In Hebrews 2, 6 through 9, the writer of Hebrews speaks the words of Psalm 8 and he speaks them about Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the embodiment then of the perfect man in Psalm 8. Jesus is both the God of Psalm 8 and the man of Psalm 8. And the glory of God is seen in him. The glory of God is seen in man. But the glory of God is most clearly pictured in this earth in the God who became a man for us. See, Jesus came to the earth and he was obviously very God of very God, but he was also the perfect human being. It was under his feet that everything was subjected. You see it in his life. The birds of the air. Jesus says, Peter, I'm telling you what, guess what? Before, you before the rooster crows three times, I'm, I know this, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. His sovereign control over the birds, over the fish, they can't catch anything. They've been out all night. Throw it on the other side. I'll show you. Fish are going to jump into your net. And they do. Jesus control over the fish and all that swim in the seas. He says, pull out that, pull out that fish. There's going to be a coin in it. You give that coin to the Roman government as part of your taxes. Jesus showing his control over all of creation, over the storms and over the seas, over the wind and the waves. Jesus says, stop, be quiet. And they calm down like glass. Jesus is the one the perfect picture of humanity. You see, when the order God, us, and creation was upheaved and up, uh, overthrown, it became creation and us over God. Jesus came to reverse that. See, death entered when we took the place of God, but life entered when God took the place of sinners at the cross. You remember the picture of alienation, alienated from God, that was us, alienated from each other, blaming each other, alienated from ourselves, we're naked and ashamed, alienated with creation. And it was pictured forth in Genesis as thorns infest the ground. So we sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Jesus took all of that alienation upon himself when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? when he was abandoned by his disciples, when he was naked and ashamed. And as the mockery of the Roman leadership and the Jewish leadership was being levied against Jesus, it was a crown of thorns that Jesus took upon himself to say the curse that came because of your sin, I'm taking it upon myself in order that the right order could be restored and that all that was lost could be given back so that now we can live on this side of the cross in full view and one day the redemption and the restoration of the world is coming but for now we understand there's only one god it's not me and it's not you 
but created a little bit lower than God in the image of God, crowned not with thorns, but with glory and honor is us. And under us is creation. You see the problem and the challenge, right? It's that a lot of times what we think to be true is not really true. Albert Tate, great preacher out of Fellowship Monrovia in California, he says, that's our difficulty. A lot of times we have a hard time separating the facts from the truth because what we think are facts aren't always true. And when the facts that we hold on to collide with the truth of God's Word, then we need to cling to the truth over and above what we think is real. What does that mean? That just sounds like a bunch of mental gymnastics. Here's what it means. Fact is, there's no way that I can walk on water. But the truth is, God can defy the laws of gravity if he calls you to come. Fact is, there's no way. Eight months' wages couldn't afford to pay for all these crowds of people for them to eat just a little bit. Truth is, Jesus is the bread of life. And you give what you have to him, and he will feed the multitudes of people. Fact is, I feel like I'm all alone. Truth is, God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Fact is, I feel pretty insignificant in light of all this great big world and, and, and no one cares for me. Truth is, God is mindful of you, that he cares for you, that he made you a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. Fact is, I don't think that anyone cares if I were to disappear from this life. Truth is, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have the life that is eternal. Who would do that? Who would give his only son? At the top of every sermon that I preach on my manuscript, one of the questions I write is, do I love these people enough to die for them? Almost every time the answer is no, but, but say the answer is yes. Like, I love you enough that I would die for you. I hope that I could. But I would never give my son. I would never give my son. Who would do such a thing? Only one who wanted to restore the right view of humanity to itself and only one who wanted you to know how much he loves you. Here's your right appraisal. You are so sinful and so rotten and so rebellious that Jesus had to die, but you are so dearly loved that he was glad to die for you. Let's pray together. Let's pray for a minute, just asking the Lord that he would help us. Meditate on these truths. Let it span the chasm from our mind into our hearts. Because unless you see who you are in the eyes of God, you will never live the life God called you to live, nor will you be able to see others the way that they were meant to be seen. But when you begin to see people, everyone, made in the image of God, crowned with honor, dignity, and glory, not God, not above Him, not creation, lower than them, but as the prize 
the masterpiece, the Mona Lisa of the great gallery of God's glory. Only then will you not shrink before humans who you think are better. Only then will you not judge or look down on those you think are worse. Only then will you be able to love them with the love of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, help me to understand who you are. Help me to understand who I am. And help that to change me. Let's pray for a minute like that together. Quietly or out loud, but just honestly for a minute. Okay, this is, this is crucial. This is where it moves from being, ah, oh, that was good, to being life transforming. It's where it moves from your mind into your heart so that you can live it. All right, let's pray for a minute. I'll pray for us, and then we'll continue with one last prayer through song. Father in heaven, I don't know what, what would be the best way for all of us to really internalize this message. Maybe as we close our eyes to pray and we think of our Father in heaven, we can picture him with a glittering crown, the king of the world, and yet still so intimate as he invites us to pull up a chair next to him as he laughs with us and smiles with us and weeps with us, to see our Father as our King, the great God of all. Maybe it would help if we would imagine a crown, dignity, honor in every person that we see, that we wouldn't just walk by them judging, walk by them, ignore them. We'd walk by them. we say, hello, Prince, hello, Princess, at least in our minds. When we look at ourselves in the mirror, that we'd put a 10 on our forehead knowing that we are loved by God, created to be the perfect one for you. It would remind us that this is who we are, who others are in light of who you are. We thank you so much that you loved us at such a cost and that you love us still and you'll never stop loving us. May that news, may that reality Grab a hold of our hearts, set our hearts in warm, loving devotion to you. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.